Hey everyone, this is Gons, and welcome to another episode of the Seed Table Podcast, where we try to make sense of what's going on in European technology. My guest today is Nicholas Mills. Nick is an operator and early stage investor, currently general manager for EMEA at Circle CI, where he leads the new London HQ. Before joining Circle CI, Nick was the head of revenue for UK and Ireland at Stripe and the head of sales for EMEA at Facebook. So he has an incredible amount of experience to share with us. Nick is a wonderful guest, and in this conversation, we cover absolutely everything. Nick's path to leading the Circle CI London HQ, his framework for when to leave a job, an idea, or a project, his work at Circle CI, and how they are taking the CI CD industry by storm, Nick's framework for hiring and managing a team, and why one on ones are so important, what makes the London tech ecosystem unique how Nick picks the books he reads and why reading fiction is important, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Hey Nick, it's a pleasure to have you on the Seat Table podcast. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for inviting me. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, so let's dive right in. Um, and let's start with a sort of personal question to, to get things going. What were you doing the moment you got the offer from Circle CI to leave the London office? How did it feel? Yeah. Um, so, I, so I suppose the, the literal answer was I was sheltering from a shower in London on Whitecross Street Market near Old Street when uh, Jane, uh, who's the CRO at Circle CI, called me up. Um, uh, you know, obviously the, the backstory is that I've been approached probably around like mid-April time um, by an exec search firm. And, and so Circle CI uh, was looking at the time to, you know, they'd uh, closed their Series D or Poise 2 and were really looking to expand internationally. Uh, they were looking for someone who had an experience working with a developer-focused company. Um, yeah, they were looking for someone who's data-driven, experienced working in a, in a regional GM-type role, and ideally, you know, been early on the ground in, in a you know, successful tech scale-up. And so they, they got in touch, and I'd um, ended up having about, I guess, sort of three hours or so uh, conversation over coffee with the CEO, Jim, uh, and, uh, and Jane as well, when, when they were in London. And then it kind of been a bit of a whirlwind since then, so I, so I did a... a 36-hour trip to San Francisco over a, over a, a bank holiday weekend, which uh, you know involved like 10 or so interviews with varying senior execs. And uh, I've been making a bit of a habit of, of doing this. I did a similar thing when I joined Stripe uh, to go and spend some time with John uh, Collison and Will Gabrick back back then too. So I suppose you know once the call came to get the offer, uh, you know I spent a lot of time thinking about the. Uh, the opportunity and whether it was the right thing for me and honestly I, I you know I was really brought into what Circle CI does at that point in time but, you know I've always been very drawn to working for um, not, not just working for what I think are, are good or even great companies but companies where I feel like you know you can do really high leverage work um, and you know create I suppose ultimately more value than, than just building a successful business as a, as a kind of standalone company and I think, you know, I was thinking about what um, I heard Max Clifford say the other day, I might have even been on uh, one of your podcasts, that, you know, recently the power has shifted from people that write checks to people that write code. And, you know, Circle CI being, you know, a very developer-centric company, I really looked at it and felt like this was, you know, this was the perfect opportunity and, and the right time in many respects for me as well. You know, 
I think working with companies that, you know, working, working for a company on Circle TI where, you know, we're empowering and are the critical enabler for the engineering teams for the products that they go on uh, to build um, feels like, you know, it's, it's high leverage, creates great value. And um, yeah, you know, it was, it was kind of too good an opportunity to turn down, I guess. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And you worked, as you said, at Stripe. Uh, you also worked at Facebook. This means you've left some great gigs. Like, do you have a framework or, or a heuristic uh, for when to leave something? It could be a job, an idea, or a friend, or whatever. Yeah, great, great, great question. I suppose, I mean, I guess it's like a combination of two things. Like, I, I tend to have a, a kind of long-term plan you know call it a framework if you like or certainly at least like a compass for for decision making in my in my own uh, mind um and you know looking back over the years i've kind of gone from typically kind of move to move has been working pretty early stage series a series b type stage companies and then moving to larger companies you know mostly in recent years venture backed scale up tech type businesses but a, but a lot larger than that sort of series a stage and I, and I suppose um, you know the early stage companies give you really deep uh, hands-on experience where you can test ideas test skills whereas larger companies you know you, you work alongside some of the most talented and expert people you know sometimes on the planet and it's you know I've always found it provides a, a really rich source of learning and uh, knowledge development and uh, you know with, with that sort of broad framework in, in mind broad sort of compass in mind I then find it gives me the ability to kind of be both like aware of what my gaps are or what other things I want to try and, you know, kind of add to my, my skill set or, or, or kind of build knowledge in. And, you know, so to kind of give you, give, give you some examples, like thinking back to when I when I'm joined Facebook, I'd previously been at a Series B company, which had, had a successful IPO. And I was really looking to work for a company that was cutting edge in software engineering. So when the opportunity came round, I didn't choose necessarily to go and you know go and work for Facebook as my desired choice, but when the opportunity came to go and work there, you know it really fitted my kind of you know long term long term plan. You know sim similarly, when I joined uh, Stripe, I'd, I'd previously been at a Series B uh, tech company um, on the executive team, and we'd had a successful acquisition in 2017. So you know in that instance, I was really looking at the op the opportunity to learn a new industry, do something a little bit different than than what I been working in, in in at that point in time at Technotech and um, you know Stripe seemed to be you know the perfect sort of complement to what I've been doing and so you know it's really having that broad kind of idea about where you want to go maybe one or two moves into the future gives you then that that kind of flexibility and receptiveness to uh, you know taking opportunities when they come up and uh, you know and, and being able to make a move and, and sometimes that that move can happen sooner than you anticipated you know definitely Moving to Circle CI from Stripe was was a little bit sooner uh, than I thought. You know, a lot of people tend to kind of wait and wait. And, you know, maybe until they're fully vested, or they or they kind of feel like they've they've really sort of maximised that experience, and, and that that's definitely a good uh, strategy. But you know, for me, I think just going with the flow a little bit more within that kind of overall framework of your long term direction uh, and long term plans is uh, has has been pretty effective. So now Circle CI, uh, but to sort of lay the foundation of the rest of the conversation, why don't you walk me through what Circle CI does, mostly for my non-engineering audience? Like, what do you guys do? Your philosophy, your differentiators? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so you know, Circle CI, we, we provide software that enables software engineers to build software. 
in its in its sort of you know simplest terms you know people have obviously been sort of building software for for a number of years and there's a lot of different methods to how you would manage um, the software development lifecycle whether that's you know prototyping or, or waterfall which was you know and has been pretty easy and pretty common approach to building software and then you know we saw the rise of, of agile and um, uh, that's you know certainly the sort of fastest moving tech companies applying the, the agile principles to how you run your team operate your team and then select the tools that you use has become um, pretty effective and that's because you know those companies decided that like in, in a waterfall model you're working over long periods of time large batches of, of work and you know pretty fixed milestones but if you want to move with greater speed um, and, and also, you know, there's the kind of nexus of speed, but also building quality at the same time in, in terms of the build and test and deploying of the, of the software uh, that you build. There are different ways in which you need to operate and kind of principles and practices uh, that you need to try to uh, embrace in order to do that. And so that's where um, what's called continuous integration and continuous delivery comes in. So, you know, it, it's a practice and it also requires certain tools. Um, and Circle CI is, is one of the providers of the tools that, that, that enable teams to um, be able to actually implement that practice. And so it's really fundamentally about building, testing and deploying incrementally. Um, and so, you know, releasing small batches of changes to your code into your code base and then integrating that code frequently into your uh, what's called your version control system, the place where you where you store your code and then also trying to deploy that code frequently into production which is the place where your you know your live systems operate and in addition to that you know it really requires employing rigorous testing dynamic testing so that you can surface errors faster try and fix those issues quicker and not leaving it until you know you've got a finished product that is kind of you know pretty pretty massive and pretty difficult to be able to to kind of identify where the problems are or, or fix them quickly and and ultimately to make all of that work you you have to automate a lot of that process, you know, in the end, what you're trying to do is minimize manual tasks, minimize people delays. And really, if you're doing anything more than twice, then, then you should automate that. And, you know, the, the, in the end, like what's, what's continuous integration and continuous delivery or CICD for short uh, enables is that you can build and ship software faster with quality. You can automate a lot of that software uh, development process so you can get quicker signals, shorter feedback loops, and also recover uh, you know, faster when things do go wrong, which which they will. You, you know, writing software is still incredibly incredibly complex, and what we what CI/CD and and then Circle CI tries to do is automate a lot of that and take that that kind of pain away, and it enables you know your software teams to really focus on the the core of building their products rather than having to build the tools that that enable the teams to operate, and and then you know we enable that to happen at, at high quality and at scale. Yep. So. The reason we're talking is because I'm working with the Circle CI team to, to refine a concept I'm calling engineering as a boat. Essentially, like in a world where, where software it's the world, like how fast your team moves is sort of like a big determinant of success. Have you thought about it like that way, like outside of just the purely engineering team and how that affects companies? And have you seen it play out differently in different organizations? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, a lot. Of, I think it's particularly pertinent now you know a lot of companies are in survival mode right now it's been an incredibly difficult year for for many businesses but but I think it's also you know it's also important at a point in time like this more so than ever to, to think about the future think about 
what your competitive advantage is and you know what what your what your moat is and and i suppose i kind of think about like four things that are the, are the best ways that a company could could build a moat you know one of those is economies of scale so you get a cost advantage based on your ability to uh, run and, and, and build and deliver a, a product at scale you know another is network effects so if you're a product becomes more valuable based on having more users, Facebook being you know, a fantastic example of that. Another would be brand. So you, know, if you, you can have a really low cost, uh, cost of acquisition if you have a really strong brand. But like, arguably, one of the best ways to try to build that moat is then having a differentiated product. Of course, like, you know, many companies believe that they have a unique product to have differentiation. And, and you know, of course, many of them do. And that can come in through, you know, through patents and IP and, and kind of pricing power. But like, you know, I, I definitely think that the way that you build that software uh, or build that product can, can become a competitive advantage. In, in my own experience at Facebook and Stripe, you know, I definitely saw a significant change going coming from you know companies i'd worked at earlier in my career and the way in which they built products to then working for those sorts of businesses where they're they're not only trying to build the best and highly differentiated differentiated products but they're also trying to get that that product into the hands of the consumer as quickly as possible and to do that at significant scale and you know that you know the, the, the kind of the speed of delivery is fundamental to obviously like how you're operating the team um, and the products you're using, like we've got some great examples of of this. With uh, there's a company called Livestorm uh, that works with Circle CI. They're a Series A business. They provide video conferencing tools. And unsurprisingly, when everyone started working from home, they had a, a significant 10x increase in uh, usage on the platform. And the thing that's enabled them to attract and uh, retain users that flocked to the platform quickly was that they were using CI CD principles. And they had a really strong engineering team and they were able to respond and scale up their, you know, their, their, their products uh, very, very quickly. You know, another example would be like, it's hard to kind of pinpoint specific companies in our user base, but what we actually did last year is we conducted just at the end of last year, uh, a significant piece of data analysis, looking at the information we have in our platform to give you an idea of our scale. You know, we process data relating to something like 30, 31 million uh, workflows, which are a set of, you know, products or projects or features that are being built and running through our platform at, uh, over time. Um, and what we saw is that companies that have embraced some of these kind of DevOps and, and CI principles, even, even an average user of continuous integration can rank among some of the highest uh, performing software delivery teams. And that companies that are, that are using CI end up being able to run their workflows quicker. They, they finish them in much less time, which means they get more productivity out of their engineers. They can ship products faster and scale those products much, much uh, more quickly. And so, yeah, you know, I think the ability to use the technology to, and, and to kind of empower teams to adopt some of these principles creates some of the highest levels of performance in software engineering and um, you know, absolutely gives you an opportunity to differentiate yourself based on the way you're running the team and not just the, the product you actually build as a result. Speaking of modes and strategic decisions, um, CircleCI does one very specific thing along sort of the entire engineering spectrum, right, CICD. How are you thinking strategically about companies like GitHub, for instance, who are trying to just become one-stop shops for everything? Yeah, yeah, it's, um, you know, in many respects, it's kind of, you know, the classic, you know, one size fits all, one single provider, 
versus you know a set of providers that kind of in, in combination create a, a best in breed technology i think from my point of view you know all in one sounds good but but i don't think it's really necessarily built for the realities of how complex software development really is today and you know i'm sure some com- for some companies it's it's the right choice but you know what we what we tend to see is that the companies that use circle ci and that are really you know interested in the, the the kind of the best in breed independent interoperable kind of choice of, of technology you know they they really view the fact that maximizing developer productivity and the ability to you know move as quickly as possible in terms of speed quality and automation of, of how they're actually shipping their software is the highest kind of point of leverage that they have as, as, a, as a software engineering team and you know it's just too important to you know trust a sort of general purpose you know kind of sort of minimal viable product type capability in CICD what we tend to see is that you know users absolutely want flexibility and that really is like you, the kind of companies we work for really value developer empowerment more so than a kind of you know traditional enterprise model where you know head of IT decides which products and services are going to be acquired at an enterprise level and then the teams need to use those um, and so the result is we work with a lot of you know venture backed companies that highly sophisticated in software engineering, but also very much focused on empowering the developers and teams to make the choices that they want. Um, so it's very difficult in that sort of environment to have a single vendor solution that's going to meet the requirements of all of those individual teams. But we also see, you know, a, ver- a variety of reasons why, you know, companies want that flexibility. So one is that, you know, they want to be able to pick the, the, the existing um, product to fit in with their existing stack. But they also want to preserve optionality for the future to be able to make changes as they feel they need to as their business grows and scales. So interoperability is, is very, very important and optionality is very important. You know, to that end, you can start to see why you know, multi-cloud as a, as a proposition is becoming more and more popular. So that's the idea that people want to write code once, but then have the ability to run that anywhere um, and have portability over, over that code. It, it avoids vendor lock-in for sure. It gives you the ability to reduce the the risk of having you know limited leverage on your cost management when you're only working with one kind of single partner and you know there are also when you look at like when you look at cloud platforms there are uh, you know a range of different benefits uh, or advantages say for example aws has a strong breadth of services and developer functionality and, and has a really strong pace of feature rollouts uh, versus say gcp which is particularly strong on data services has a lot of support for open source technologies and you know companies like circle ci want to have the ability and the flexibility to be able to tap into what those different providers offer and you know i was thinking the other day to something which i saw james grosvenor from redmond could had written which is that he you know in the world where there's a lot of MA activity you know really the idea of having a single cloud vendor strategy is kind of in his words a, a moot kind of uh, strategy over time and so you know, if, if you go with a single vendor to provide all the aspects of your tool chain, you're eliminating your ability to have that flexibility. And, um, you know, it's, it's another reason why you look at companies like uh, Stripe or Twilio or AuthZero. They've, you know, really built out their capabilities based on a best in breed API, which means that, you know, developers 100% have the ability to um, pick the best in class solution, swap those solutions in and out when they need to. Um, depending on what the particular requirements are of the business at that point in time. 
And, um, you know, that's, that's kind of certainly like our strategy when it comes to CICD. This also forces you as a company, essentially, to just keep being the best in breed, right? Sort of the, if, if you're easy to swap in and out, then you're incentivized to just be the best in class. Because otherwise, if, if you're a GitHub and you just do everything and you're essentially locked in, then you don't really have the incentives to keep innovating. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, Circle CI, we're really, you know, deeply rooted, as I say, in, in the power of the developer and, you know, our, our prime, prime focus is on enabling companies to maximize developer productivity. When, when you look at, you know, you have version control, uh, which is what I say GitHub or, or GitLab primarily uh, has, has provided over uh, time. You have CI/CD tools as the sort of central pillar, and then you have your cloud systems. And you know what we believe is that being uh, a single focus company where it's our core offering, and we've been focused on that for almost ten years now, um, has meant that we've we you know we've, we've built what we believe is the, the most advanced and highest performing uh, cloud-based platform for CI/CD. And uh, you know we, we in addition to that, it's it's meant that rather than kind of getting distracted by building lots of other things, we've really focused on the extensibility of the platform. So. There are when you actually like look at the developer tools uh, ecosystem. There are you know there are quite literally hundreds of companies providing you know individual features or individual capabilities, and some have built whole businesses around those. And they're all in their own way best in breed in those particular you know particular pieces in a way that in combination there's no, you know it's really impossible for a single vendor to to ever you know replicate what you can have by integrating all of those best in breed partners into a solution. And, you know, so our, our, our focus, our heavy investment has been on trying to make it as streamlined as possible. So, you know, it's as easy as possible for developers to be able to choose, you know, right down to those sort of niche areas, the best in breed uh, provider. Now, CircleCI expanded to Europe and, and chose London as their HQ over there. What's unique about the sort of the London technology scene or the London ecosystem? Yeah, I I mean, there's, there's probably, I guess, you know, five or six reasons, um, you know, why we chose London as, as the, uh, as the kind of, you know, beachhead for our, our expansion. And, and I do use that phrase intentionally because, you know, we've, we've launched here, but we, even prior to actually setting up an office or me, me joining the business back in September, you know, we, we had four or five years of customer growth across the whole of the region. We're actually today, as of uh, July, we had paid customers in 58 countries across EMEA. Uh, Smallest markets are Jersey and uh, Qatar. Uh, our newest customer was uh, actually in Montenegro. Uh, so, you know, we're really a genuinely EMEA business and, and have been for a number of years. But launching into, into the UK and into London made sense for, for a few reasons. First off, the user base that we have is the largest in the UK. And, and it is particularly focused on London-based tech companies. We've been very successful with the, the, the startup and scale-up tech businesses, venture-backed businesses, uh, over here, so the likes of Babylon Health, Monzo, Transferwise, Deliveroo are some of our some of our largest and longest standing customers. And we've seen across a lot of the region, but particularly in the UK, you know, genuinely exponential growth in our customer base over time, particularly on the cloud product. And you know, we actually the first market that we launched into internationally was Japan, uh, and we had a, a groundswell of interest and and a kind of pull from the customers over there which is why we set up there. And it's not your typical move for a US company to, to go to Asia Pacific or Japan uh, first, but, um, you know, Circle CI had done that and done that well. Um, and so, you know, following that kind of pull approach, um, moving into the UK made, made most sense based on the users. 
And then, and then we, you know, we looked at some additional data points, things like IT and software investment. The UK continues to be the highest spender on uh, software and R&D in Europe uh, behind uh, just the US, China and Japan. High level of cloud adoption, which is important for our model, where we're providing a software as a service as an outsourced provision. And so, you know, having companies that buy into the idea of outsourcing some core parts of their tech stack uh, to another provider. Uh, and trusting that provider to, to deliver that service with regular uptime with, you know, sort of privacy and compliance and so on as part of the proposition um, was, was pretty important. And then we looked at where the software developers are. So, you know, the UK and Germany has the highest number of software developers in Europe, just under a million professional developers uh, at last count. And London particularly, you know, Stack Overflow's data last year showed that they have around 350,000 software developers in, in London. It also made the, you know, comparison to Germany, it made the UK market quite an easy choice to set up in London, whereas Germany, it's hard to kind of decide where would be the, the focal point there, because it is very decentralized as a country, as you know. And, um, you know, although we have a concentration of, of uh, users in Berlin, we also have good representation across, you know, Munich, Hamburg, Frankfurt and, and other, other cities. When you look at the UK, London really at the moment is, is the prime uh, locus for, uh, for our, our uh, you know, software development engineers in, in the country. You know, some additional data points for VC investment, you know, again, UK continues to be the biggest recipient of capital in Europe, which has continued into, into this year, where it's around two times Germany, a little bit more than two times France. And, and a lot of that is based on the strength of the tech ecosystem in, in London, as you, as you know, no doubt know. So, you know, a lot of the VC firms are located in the city, accelerators, incubators, legal and M&A experts, financial advisors, and, and kind of underpinning a lot of that, the universities, which are obviously a fantastic draw for talent and developing talent. And then I suppose like one final consideration is just the, the ease of expansion. The, you know, the UK government since back in around 2010 has particularly set out to try and make it quite easy and provide a lot of support systems for companies launching over here, particularly in tech combined with you know, language and culture and, and things like that, you know, it makes it a pretty easy place from a foreign direct investment standpoint to actually launch a company. You know, although over time, I think, you know, I think in, in Europe that's changing and it's getting increasingly competitive. There's obviously you know, the emergence of a lot of cities and tech hubs in cities that are looking to, to replicate uh, some of that success, whether it's Berlin or Paris or, or Barcelona or, or further afield in places like Lisbon or, or Tallinn. And, um, you know, it, it will be interesting to see how that develops, because from, from our, our point of view, we've got a lot of customers in a lot of those cities, a lot of those hubs. But I also think, you know, there's, there's an increasing opportunity for Europe in general and companies in Europe to try and tap into that fragmentation um, and the kind of natural diversity within Europe is, is a huge, huge competitive advantage, I think. And it's, you know, the sort of the rich tapestry of cultures that make up the region provides a fantastic you know, basis for diverse talent, interesting ideas, lots of innovation. I can't 100% say that if, you know, if we were making this decision again in the years to come, that London would, would be necessarily the best choice. I think there's a lot of, you know, a lot of cities now uh, out there that um, you know, present a fantastic opportunity for expansion. You've been working in London for how long? Just over 20 years with, with a brief uh, sojourn in Sydney, but uh, yeah, otherwise in the city. How have you seen the London technology scene evolve in the past couple of decades, just from a personal boots on the ground perspective? Yeah, um, well, I, uh, I started out working in uh, newspapers actually originally, um, and then you know, made, made the transition into tech uh, in 2006. Um, 
worked for my first tech startup, which was um, actually a, a Santa Monica, LA headquartered company. And it was my uh, kind of first role as, as, as first on the ground, expanding the business. I found it at that point in time, 2006, like pretty, pretty difficult to hire talent, limited, you know, limited people in the city that had the kind of expertise that we were looking to looking to hire based on, you know, we could see the kind of people that we had in the business in the US and we knew that we wanted to expand and tap into the markets, but didn't necessarily have the kind of depth and breadth of skills that, that, that we needed for the roles. You know, I, I went to work for Microsoft in 2008 and, you know, that was a kind of interesting educational experience. And I think, you know, a lot of, comp- a lot of people that were at that point in time working in enterprise software and, and as increasingly companies like Facebook and Google and Microsoft and others were, were really, you know, scaling out their operations here. It's had a tremendous kind of, you know, spillover benefit for, for talent and they've been great incubators of talent. And so over the last 10 years, you know, partly driven by the UK government's specific investment in Old Street and the kind of tech and startup scene and supporting incubators and accelerators and so on. That's, that's definitely increased the amount of native talent. It's attracted a lot of people to the city, um, combined with some of the spillover benefits that we start to see for, from, from big companies, um, people exiting those companies, having had tremendous learning experiences and maybe going on and starting their own businesses. You know, me kind of being being one of those people that's ended up, you know, on a few different occasions, um, you know, working in international expansion type opportunities. Um, I think there's been, you know, a significant change over the last 10 years in terms of the number of, number of people that, um, uh, you know, that, that are part of the scene, part of the ecosystem, combined with those other components I mentioned before that have really, you know, enabled the, the ecosystem to work effectively. Let's switch lanes a bit. Um, you've managed or you've been managing teams and, and working in tech for, for a while like what are some of the best frameworks or tools or strategies you've come across for time allocation and management yeah yeah i mean it's something i think about a lot um and you know i, I think it really it does depend on your job role to a large extent i mean you know if you're if you're project oriented that's going to have you know a certain set of time management allocation requirements if you manage people equally and if you're in a leadership position where you need to spend a a percentage of your time you know reading thinking uh, working on strategy versus specifically you know operational uh, aspects for me to a certain extent i suppose my role is um slightly unique because you know i have a broad set of functions that i've got responsibility for and teams of people that that are kind of part of those functions but we're also building and scaling out. So, you know, we, we need to, I need to kind of get, get broad and deep at the same time, which, you know, often, often it's, I have to remind my US colleagues quite frequently that I'm trying to, you know, do each of their jobs simultaneously. Uh, so, you know, time management is crucial. I think my, my, my kind of general, I have, a, I suppose, a sort of way that I broadly think about the allocation of time, a structure to my, my day, each day, um, and then how I think about prioritizing work uh, within that. So I typically would spend maybe 20% of my time uh, in you know, one-to-ones with direct reports, which is very much focused on you know, aligning on goals and initiatives, helping them prioritize their work and unblock problems. And it has very much a, a sort of coaching emphasis. Because of being in, in, a, in a US company, but, but you know, regionally headquartered you know, office here, I spend probably another 20% of my time in uh, one-to-ones or small team meetings working with the cross-functional global leaders in the business which 
is less, it's actually less operational. It's much more focused on, you know, short and midterm goals and, and long-term plans. And then I'd probably spend another 20% of my time thinking about strategy, working on strategy, and particularly for the region. Um, so, you know, what are our, our mid and long-term goals and how do we, how do we plan for that? And um, in addition to that, you know, because we're in an international scale-up environment, I, I also spend about another 20% of my, t- my time interviewing, <laughs> uh, which, um, which I love. I really enjoy uh, meeting new people and, and getting to know new people. Um, it, it, you know, it sort of ebbs and flows, but, um, and it is somewhat unique to a scale-up where, you, you know, it, it is a lot of time to spend interviewing. And sometimes people are surprised that I, I spend that much time doing it. And I tend to get involved pretty early in the hiring process. But it's crucial because, you know, I'm trying to attract diverse people to the business. I've got, you know, we've got sort of frameworks for how we try to hire the kind of things that we're looking for in hiring. I'm looking for a combination of, you know, specialism and expertise, but also people that can contribute to our culture and, and, you know, add to our our values and our principles as a business. Um, So, you know, it's, it's time well worth spending. And then, you know, the, the remainder of my time, I try and minimize the sort of reactive communication. You know, we, we use Slack and email and things like that, of course, but so I try to kind of minimize that and, um, you know, minimize operational and, and reporting aspects too. As a company and as an individual, I've kind of tried to embrace the, the sort of agile principles of, of, you know, minimal reporting and more focus on, on, you know, the actual kind of doing. And then, you know, the remainder of my time, as much as I can spend, you know, thinking time, reading time, uh, which often doesn't really fit into, into the day, I end up, you know, doing a lot of that. Uh, you know, I always read before bed or, you know, if I'm out running or, or doing some sort of uh, indoor cycle session or in the car, stuff like that. So, yeah. And then um, I think, you know, it's been interesting this year because like a typical daily structure in some regards, it's, it's changed. I've definitely become a lot more intentional about thinking about how I, how I plan my time. And typically, you know, morning is early mornings prioritization. We've, we've introduced at a company level, you know, a, an effort to really kind of box out, uh, you know, focus time, um, not to get disrupted by, you know, digital communication or other things, which there was a sort of knee-jerk reaction to do more of uh, because we were no longer in an office in many of our locations. And, uh, you know, followed by one-to-one time and then tends to repeat later into the day. Let's go back to something you mentioned, one-on-ones. For me and, and for the teams I run, one-on-ones are probably the most important meetings that I, that I do. Do you have any frameworks for running one-on-ones with your, with your direct reports? Yeah, we... It does, you know, it does vary because of the nature of my role where, you know, I tend to, it's a little bit like an approach of a COO in a company, you know, thinking back to my time at Stripe where, you know, Claire, who was a COO at Stripe, sort of positioned it as if she does a good, a good job in her role, she ends up doing herself out of a job at some point in the future because she's kind of building the business function by function. And once it exists, you know, she kind of moves on to the next thing that requires attention. You know, that's certainly how um, at CircleCI, particularly most recently, that's certainly how I've, I've kind of planned my time. And so, um, you know, I started with um, the, the revenue team, um, you know, obviously a commercial business and building the revenue team is really important. Um, spent a lot of my time um, getting things in place in terms of the people, the, some of the processes that, that we need. And so the tone of one-to-ones with those people in those early stages is slightly different to us, you know, now that team with a director of, of those people is pretty self-sufficient. Um, and we have some loose structure in our one-to-ones um, it, that, that, you know, kind of focus on goals and initiatives. We run an OKR process. So we, we, we think about how we're tracking to those, you know, key objectives and key results. 
um, and then um, I try to make sure to you know to spend a good amount of time on like a free kind of open agenda where the person in the one-to-one -one can obviously raise things which are important to them um, and you know not not kind of make it a reporting session but make it more of a coaching session um, and you know to that end I also try to separate out the, the operational type one-to-ones from feedback and development one-to-ones which you know are bi-directional in feedback but also very much oriented to you know the the, the short medium and long-term career plans that that person has and and that works once you know once the team's up and running and, and the kind of functions there and then I tend to kind of move on to the next function so I'm spending a lot of time at the moment building out our marketing team and building out our customer success team and starting to scale up some of our technical support teams as well so you know the, the the focus of those conversations can be quite different because it's a little bit more tactical and a little bit more about you know what you need to do short term. What are you reading right now? Um, I just finished a really good book by a guy called Richard Baldwin called uh, The Great Convergence, which is about how IT has enabled the, the new globalization and thinking about the kind of you know, the, the evolution of the role that technology has played in varying stages in the Industrial Revolution, leading to the information and communication revolution from the 90s onwards, and then a kind of forward facing view on, you know, it's actually it was actually written, you know, uh, 2016. So before everything that's happened this year, where people have suddenly become very dispersed, but uh, you know, he talks a lot about, you know, future focused ways in which technology could sort of address the kind of the balance between, you know, developed countries, developing countries, uh, and, um, you know, yes, I'd certainly recommend reading. How do you pick the books you read? Do you have like a strategy or something? Or it's just, you just grab whatever's on your nightstand? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I generally, I'm pretty, I tend to be pretty focused on like areas that I'm interested in learning about, and, and we'll do a lot of research on, People that I think are, you know, the most sort of preeminent writers on those subjects um, and then, you know, go and look to find, you know, their most influential pieces of work and understand, understand those. You, you know, if I've got a particular topic of focus, and I also like to try and, um, you know, read the, the, the sort of the historical writers over time. And so, you know, if it's to do with economics, then going back to reading, you know, David Ricardo or Joseph Schumpeter or people of that nature before you kind of give you the foundation before you start reading um, about some, you know, what some of the more, more recent uh, writers have to say. But I often, you know, I, I do, I'll be reading something, they'll be referencing, you know, a particular author or a topic, and then that will kind of, you know, prompt my interest to then go and read something uh, that they've written. So, you know, I've got a, a kind of endless stream of Amazon book deliveries arriving most days. Um, but, but I also, you know, I, I try to balance, you know, work and sort of topics associated to work like economics and, um, and other, other things with, with fiction. And so I've actually, if I look at sort of the body of books I have, things I've read over time, you know, by far and away, I've read more fiction than, than nonfiction, for sure. Uh, and I think sometimes, you know, learning from other fields, um, you know, be it artistic, scientific, can be, you know, can be great ways to, uh, to kind of help you, you know, see things differently within the work context. Um, you know, recently, particularly, listen to a lot of podcasts as well, you know, things like the New Scientist and the Lancet podcast have been fascinating recently, uh, in particular, and uh, yeah, can really help you see things in new ways. It's rare for particularly for people who work in technology to read fiction uh, for some weird reason. And I'm, I'm in that group, 
Do you have any fiction books you recommend for people who don't usually read fiction? <laughs> um, that is a that is a great question. I I mean you know I'm I'm quite a details oriented person, and you know I actually have a top fifty. Uh, top 50 novels of all time um, they're on a shelf in order I can certainly certainly send you that link um, I, I think it's you know I think fiction is a difficult one because it really depends on it really comes down to personal taste uh, and you know my, my kind of top three three to five books are probably not everyone's cup of tea so you know in there are things like Cash 22 um, uh, The Trial by Franz Kafka 100 Years of Solitude by uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez and the reason why I find those books Particularly, you know, things by writers like Kafka and Marquez, I find interesting because they're often set in, you know, very, very different periods of time. And, you know, I think I find personally it's quite useful to, you know, to, to the same reason as reading on different fields, different different areas. I find it interesting to kind of look at things through a different lens or through, you know, sort of different people's perspectives, because I find that it then, you know, help, helps you see see kind of things differently um in in the here and now but uh yeah i can certainly send you the list of my top 50 if you uh if you have a spare couple of years <laughs> <laughs> yes uh, i love that and i think that's a perfect place to to end on thank you so much nick for your time it's it's been a pleasure all right yeah thanks very much hey this is guns again if you enjoyed this episode of the Seed Table Podcast, please let me know by leaving an honest review. If you want to get more good stuff from me, subscribe to SeedTable.com. SeedTable is a weekly newsletter on European technology. It goes out every Friday morning and it's read by thousands of founders, investors, and operators. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Ciao.